You are listening to Books Are My People, a podcast for book lovers with book news, book recommendations, and ruminations on living a literary life in Los Angeles. This is episode 10. Hello, I am Jennifer Calayaris, your podcast host and author and creative writing instructor at UCLA Extension Writers Program. So this year, Halloween was extra spooky because we had some serious fire action in our neighborhood. We ended up leaving our house at four in the morning to get away from all the smoke and the chaos and the noise, Um, but the power was out. So we had the challenge of packing in the dark, which was a little bit stressful. Uh, School has been closed this week for a couple days, and uh, we had ourselves a little bit of an adventure. We are back home now, but I'm very, very tired. I have not felt this exhausted in a long time. Um, And then we had to ramp up for Halloween. So throw in a little sugar high and a little exhaustion. And that is where I am right now, she says, as she's on her fifth cup of coffee. In case you were concerned, the chickens were fine throughout all this excitement. And um, one good thing to come out of it is we now have a chicken evacuation plan. So I hope that if any of you are in one of the many fire zones across California, that you are safe and healthy and you have people who are helping you out because all of this can be very stressful in these strange times we're living in. I did manage to grab my Kindle when we evacuated, but there really wasn't any time to read. There were a lot of big feelings to manage. Now on to some bookish news. In keeping with the Halloween theme, horror writer Stephen King owns a Victorian mansion in Bangor, Maine, and he has recently announced that he plans on turning the home into an archive of his work and a writer's retreat. So the archive is going to house all of his writing, and scholars can check them out by appointment only. And I guess his archives have been living at the University of Maine, but they're going to be relocated. And he and his wife really wanted to avoid the neighborhood turning into a tourist attraction. So they're keeping it pretty private and low key and hard to visit. Um, And the house next door from the archive house will be used as a writer's retreat where up to five writers can come and stay and write and get inspired by all of the Stephen Kingness around them. I think that you'd almost have to be writing horror or suspense to want to stay there, right? I I don't know if the place is going to be inspiration for romance novels, but I could be wrong. According to Locus Magazine, Audible, which is Amazon's audiobook publishing arm, has announced plans for something called Audible Captions. And this is going to be a new feature that displays the text of a book alongside uh, the narration on listener devices. So Audible claimed the feature would be available on hundreds of thousands of audiobooks at launch, which was quite shocking to many publishers since the publishers hadn't given Audible the rights to publish their texts in this new format. And if Audible goes through with it without permission, they are going to most likely be in violation of multiple copyright laws. So in late August, the Association of American Publishers filed a lawsuit in order to block this program, and this included all of the big five publishers. But 
Interestingly enough, Audible is refusing to agree to stop the program and wait for permission from the publishers. So their response is that they're surprised by all this backlash because they just want to help kids who are not reading engage more through listening. And they disagree that they're violating copyright laws. I've thought about this a lot, and I can definitely recognize how this can be a great thing for reluctant readers. I myself have a child who much prefers listening to books rather than reading them, and I do think that both hold equal value. However, I do think you still have to follow the rules of the law. So in the end, the courts will be the ones to decide how this all proceeds, so stay tuned. I showed up at my parents' house a few months ago with a library book in my arm, nothing unusual there, and my mom made a comment that she has a friend who refuses to check out library books because she has a hang-up about them being dirty and full of germs or potentially other disgusting things. And I guess, as it turns out, this is a pretty common thing that has also been a thing for hundreds of years. According to Mental Floss, at the end of the 19th century, people were very worried that books could pass along smallpox and scarlet fever and tuberculosis. According to Smithsonian Magazine, the hysteria started when a librarian in Nebraska was infected with tuberculosis and died. So people were concerned that all of the books she touched could also be infected by proxy even though there were many things that many people collectively touched, like doorknobs and car doors, there was a belief that the germs would be specifically harbored within the pages of a book. And there were worries that a cough on the page would be hermetically sealed until the next person turned that page and released the germ onto the reader. It does make it seem like reading was a very dangerous sport back then. In the UK, the Public Health Act of 1875 was expanded to include library books with people known to carry disease prohibited from handling titles available to the general public. Libraries even began to experiment with ways in which they could sterilize books, including formaldehyde solutions, which sounds totally dangerous. I try not to think too hard about people's hygienic practices who read the library books before I do, But this idea of nationwide panic actually makes a perfect segue for my first book this week. So let's get on to the books. My first pick is titled Fever by Mary Beth Keene, and it was published in 2013. If you're wondering why that name sounds familiar, it's because I talked about Keene's book, Ask Again Yes?, on episode seven of Books Are My People. That was a contemporary book about a complicated family. And if you like that book, that's fantastic. But I just want to be clear that Fever is nothing like that book, but it it is equally fantastic, if not more so. So Fever is historical fiction about one of history's most famous and vilified people, Typhoid Mary. All I really knew before reading this book was that Typhoid Mary was single-handedly responsible for spreading typhoid fever all across the East Coast. However, this book delves much more deeply into who Mary was, 
we learn that she was an Irish immigrant and she arrived in the U.S. in 1883. And between then and 1915, she worked as a cook for multiple wealthy families. And sure enough, some of these well-off family members began to fall ill and some even died. And in this book, the Javert to her Jean Valjean, if you will, is a man named George Soper, who is a medical detective. And he's really the first one to put the pieces together and figure out that she is the cause of all of this sickness. And although she tries to outrun him, he ends up capturing her and gives her an ultimatum. So at the time, they believe that typhoid fever was harbored in the gallbladder. So uh, George Soper tells her that either you need to get your gallbladder out, and surgery back then was no small thing, um, and if you get your gallbladder out, you can be free, or you can say no. So she said, no way, Jose. And so she's then taken to North Brother Island, which was a hospital, but it also acted as a place for Mary to be quarantined for three years. And when she was quarantined there, they studied her body nonstop. They were constantly taking samples from her and monitoring her. And finally, after three years, they came to the conclusion that she was, I think she's the first recorded asymptomatic carrier of typhoid fever. So she could pass it along, but she never actually experienced any of the symptoms. And she had been passing it along through her cooking um, because she would do things like make some soup and taste the soup with a spoon and put that spoon right back in the soup or stick her fingers in the cassoulet or whatever it was she was eating at the time. Uh, Mary, it turns out, is a complicated woman. She has a fierce temper and she doesn't understand why she's being taken away into isolation. Um, There's also a little bit of a love story. She had been living with her boyfriend of 13 years. Um, And it also ends up being a story about how poorly she was treated uh, because not only was she a woman, but she was also poor. So there was also a case that uh, is brought up in the book of a well-off farmer who was also a silent carrier like Mary, but he was allowed to keep living on his farm because he was the breadwinner and people relied on him. So after the three years on the island, Mary is released and she has to swear never to cook for anyone else ever again. And she also has to check in every so often with the health department. And you will have to read the book to see what happens next, but let's just say it's not long before more trouble comes her way. And it's all very shocking, but I won't spoil it. This is up there with my favorite top five reads of the year for sure. I found it so compelling and interesting, not only about Mary and her story, but also I thought it was a fantastic window into New York City in the early 1900s. Mary is definitely a survivor through and through, and I was really, really sad when the book ended and just kept thinking about it. Oh, And one other funny part was when the newspapers first started writing about Mary's capture and subsequent isolation on the island, they really wanted to give her a catchy name. So the first iteration of her name was Germ Woman, but obviously that did not quite take off. So when another writer used the phrase Typhoid Mary, that's the one that stuck. And again, that is Fever by Mary Beth Keene. 
It feels a little too soon after the fires here to be talking about children who spontaneously combust, but I'm going to do it anyway. My next pick is Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson, and this came out in October. You may recognize his name as he is the author of The Family Fang, which was a great book and also became an okay movie. Can I say that? I just said it. The book, uh, Nothing to See Here, is absolutely fantastic. It's a quick read. It's about a woman named Lillian who is down on her luck. She sits around smoking a lot of pot, doesn't have a job. She lives with her mom. And when she was younger, she ended up at a very fancy girls boarding school. She was surrounded by young women who had led very different lives than the one she had. Um, These are girls who were full of privilege and just had every opportunity thrown their way. So Lillian becomes friends with one of these girls. Her name is Madison. And one night, drugs are found in their room, and Madison's father offers to pay Lillian's mother a large sum of money in order to have Lillian take the fall for his daughter. So Lillian's mother agrees and forces Lillian to take the blame, which in turn changes the course of her life. The women never see each other again, but they stay in touch through letters. And when the book begins, Madison has reached out to Lillian, asking her to come stay with her in Tennessee. Madison is now married to a senator who has his eye on becoming secretary of state, and they have a child together. But the senator also has twins with his ex-wife, and his ex-wife has just passed away suddenly. So the twins come to live with Madison. And the problem is these twins have a certain medical condition, you're just going to have to go with me here, whereby they spontaneously burst into flames whenever they get too emotional. So as we all know, kids tend to get emotional a lot. So um, Madison basically hires Lillian to be their nanny. So Madison doesn't have to deal with these twins who aren't her biological children. And her senator husband can go on with his campaign without having to admit that he has two flaming children. So the descriptions of these children bursting into flames is just so beautiful. I felt myself awkwardly rooting for them to get angry or sad or upset just so I could see how they would erupt on the page. This is definitely speculative fiction, and you have to be able to roll with the premise. I think if you appreciate work by Amy Bender or Helen Phillips, you will find this book absolutely delightful. And again, that is Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. My next pick is The Good Liar by Nicholas Searle. And I couldn't find the original publication date. I know it was reprinted in 2016. But in any case, I chose this book because the movie based on this novel is coming out soon, and it's also called The Good Liar. And I really like to read the book before I see the movie, so I am currently feverishly trying to finish a bunch of novels that are being turned into books over the next few months. This is a classic cat and mouse premise. It reminded me of the talented Mr. Ripley, but with a much older protagonist who has definitely been around the block a few times. When we first meet Roy Courtney, Um, although he has a lot of other names throughout the novel, he is meeting elderly women online and he delights in publicly humiliating them when they aren't exactly uh, 
how they've advertised themselves. Roy is in his 80s, and he is looking for one last windfall, one last payout um, before he dies. He is specifically searching for a wealthy widow who he can manipulate. So he meets Betty, and she checks all of his boxes. She's wealthy, she's a widow, and she seems easily convinced of a great many things. So then the chapters start to alternate between the now of the story, which is his dealings with Betty, um, who also has an overprotective grandson named Stephen, who's looking out for her best interest. And then the chapters alternate with Roy's past. And the chapters that deal with Roy's past go back further and further in time. They go backwards. And we see many of the scams he's participated in in the past and all of the awful things he's done to people in the name of making money. But we also see um, how Roy came to be the unlikable person he is today. And he has made one fatal flaw in this last scheme of his in that he has totally underestimated Betty. And I will leave you with that. So read the book or see the movie. And again, it's called The Good Liar by Nicholas Searle. My next pick is also going to be a movie released on November 15th, and it shares the same title as the book. It is called The Earthquake Bird by Susanna Jones, published in 2001. This book was totally fascinating to me. It takes place in Tokyo, and it starts with the reader knowing just a few things. We know that the young woman Lucy is being interrogated for her friend Lily's murder. And we know that Lucy's boyfriend is missing. So that's how it starts. And then we get a little bit of backstory. We know that Lucy has left England 10 years earlier to make a new life for herself. She has acclimated well in Tokyo. She speaks Japanese so well, in fact, that she works as a translator. And she falls for Tenji, who is a photographer. And then she meets Lily, who is also from Yorkshire, England, which is exactly where Lucy is from. And Lucy starts out more annoyed than anything else by her new friend. She reminds her too much of home and makes her think about all these things that she is left behind and she doesn't want to think about them. But she also feels sorry for her because it turns out that Lily really needs Lucy. She needs her to help navigate the city and to translate for her and to help her feel less lonely. There's a lot of subtlety in the plot. Uh, Lucy finds photographs in her boyfriend's stack of photos of a mysterious woman she presumes is his ex-girlfriend, and she becomes fixated on who this woman was to him. So a lot of what is on the page is exploring her psychological state throughout the book. Um, it's definitely more of a character study than a plotty suspense novel. Um, yes, there is a crime and there is mystery, but I would say that just the rendering of the characters and of the city of Tokyo is the main event of this novel. I thought it was so interesting and I like that I did not know where it was going at all. Um, so again, that is The Earthquake Bird by Susanna Jones. My last pick is a nonfiction pick, and this was another book that I could not put down. I really got lucky the last couple of weeks with my reads. I just have read so many great books. Um, I picked this one up from the library, Germs and All, 
and it is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed by Lori Gottlieb. And this came out in April of this year. So this is a therapist Lori Gottlieb's memoir about her psychotherapeutic practice in Los Angeles. And throughout the book, we meet five patients. So one is a woman dying of terminal cancer who makes Lori promise her that she'll stay her therapist until the end. Another is a narcissist in the Hollywood industry. I think he was a producer and he makes jokes about Lori being his hooker. Another is a woman who is elderly and she's cut off from her family and she's suffering from depression and she has decided to commit suicide by her next birthday. And there's another young woman who continues to make bad life choices, even under Lori's fantastic guidance. So that's four patients. Who's the fifth patient? The fifth patient becomes the therapist Lori herself. She is a mother to a young son, and she's in love with her boyfriend, who she plans on marrying. And one day, seemingly out of the blue, he breaks up with her because he decides that he just doesn't want to spend the next 10 years raising someone else's child. So she's in total shock and needs to find a therapist of her own. And so she shifts the lens inward. And in addition to seeing her as these four patients therapists, we also get to see her as the patient and see how her own approach as a therapist changes once she's been on the other side of things. And she spends a lot of time wondering what her own therapist thinks of her. And then she in turn starts wondering, like, are her own patients thinking the same way? Are they getting dressed up for her? Are they thinking of the first line they're going to say to her when they walk into her office? The stories that come out of this book are entertaining, they're moving, the emotions are completely relatable, even if the circumstances are not. I totally laughed, I definitely cried, and yes, it feels quite voyeuristic at times, and I was also wondering how her patients feel about reading about themselves on the page, um, even though she does assure us that they've given complete written consent to be written about. But um, Lori Gottlieb herself has done a lot of promotion for this book, especially on the podcast circuit. So if you finish the book and you're craving more of her, like I did, um, there's an infinite amount of opportunities to hear her talk more about the book and about her patients. And again, that was Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed by Lori Gottlieb. Next up, I am reading Very Nice by Marcy Dermansky. And that is it from me. As always, all of the books are listed in the show notes section of the podcast, or you can visit booksaremypeople.com. If you like what you hear, please take a moment and show me some love on iTunes so other listeners can find me. And I am wishing you all a wonderfully bookish week. <laughs>